Hey, Lily, I think we have a record for today's podcast. What kind of record, Randy? Well, today's guest has been someone we've been after for a very long time. We originally booked her almost six months ago, and I've lost track of the number of times she's had to reschedule. But, you know, that's okay. She's definitely been worth the wait. Absolutely. And it sounds like she's barely had time to breathe. So Jimena Almanderas is the VP for Global Expansion at Intuit. But she's also been at Zynga, Facebook, Meetup, and OkCupid. And while we touch on a lot of that in our chat, it's what she learned at OkCupid that we talked to her about, about how people say one thing and act in a different way, and what that means for an optimal dating strategy. So if you're in the market for a partner, keep listening. You'll learn how to iterate your way to getting the date you wanted. The product experience is part of the Mind the Product Network. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we improve our practice. Aside from conferences in London, San Francisco, Singapore, Hamburg, and Manchester, there's also free product tanks in more than 185 cities, and there's probably one near you. Find out about them on mindtheproduct.com, where you can also catch up on past episodes, videos from the conferences, read great articles, and learn about the training that we do. Kimena, it's really lovely to have you on the podcast. Welcome and thank you for joining us. It would be really great if you could give us a really quick intro into your life in product and how you've ended up at Intuit. Yeah, sure. So um, I grew up in Mexico and I never thought that I was going to work in technology. In fact, I thought I was going to be a diplomat, but things uh, ended up working in a way where I was learning different languages, ended up going for college and my first master's in France. And as I developed in my career in strategy consulting, a lot of the projects that I was getting were related to technology. Example, uh, semiconductors, R&D, electronics, Nokia, and others. That's when I realized that I really wanted to work in product and actually be in Silicon Valley, where a lot of innovation was happening. So what I did was come to the U.S. with a student visa and then quickly moved into product as I thought that it was a discipline where, one, I could affect the changes in terms of how did I think about business and the relationship to the products we develop. And the most important one is that I had worked with engineers, with people in marketing, that I was good at analytics and strategy. And it really seemed to be the discipline where I could bring that those 10 years of experience into my new life. I started then working in a lot of new companies back in the day, like Facebook, when it was just uh, you know less than 1,000 people, Zynga, Meetup. And how I got through into it was... Before, I was a chief product officer at OkCupid to uh, help take the company public uh, together with the match offering. And that's when Intuit reached out because they needed a product executive that was able to blend a, a business perspective and also how to think about products, even QuickBooks that is ultimately designed for small, medium businesses, but that the users were actually consumers so that it could bring that consumer sense into building products for different types of customers, whether self-employed or the, uh, as mentioned, the uh, small, medium businesses. And the, the role that you have at Intuit now, do you see that as a product role or do you see it more as a, a commercial or business role? It's a hybrid. So uh, on the title side, you would say that it's more of a general manager. I'm also actually the CEO and president of a subsidiary of Intuit related to payments. Uh, but it also, I'm able to leverage the product experience very directly. 
as an example, is now I'm leading global expansion for the company. And the last time we had launched in a new country was six years ago. The reason is that for uh, Intuit, going into new countries relates to compliance and understanding the, the, the fiscal matters of the country very deeply. And obviously, that just means a lot of risk and costs. What I did, though, was uh, assess what could be an interesting country and then think about what would be an MVP that would allow us to make sure that we were launching something that was going to be unique and useful for customers in the fastest way possible. And uh, after assessing which countries would be interesting, it turns out that Mexico was the one that we selected from around the world. It was also the country that had the most complex accounting uh, system in the world. So if we proved that we could launch there, we could prove that we could launch in other countries faster. And we ended up launching a fully compliant product that was connected to the Mexican IRS um, that was in Spanish with customer support in Spanish in three months. And I obviously think that what worked <laughs> was that uh, we were able to really distill a very complex product or problem into what did that mean in terms of product milestones? What were the goals and the metrics that we needed to see to make sure that we had met product market fit? And uh, that was uh, basically just creating a very uh, succinct and focused product roadmap that would allow us then to um, simplify a business problem into more how do you execute and then start uh, giving more resources to the product that we were developing with time instead of making it a very complex decision of we need to invest everything. Uh, in this case, we were just investing in the next milestone as we were seeing results. So the rest of the world is your oyster. Pretty much. <laughs> Um, And a while ago, you did a talk at Industry Conference, which is one of the, the, well, the topic that we wanted to cover with you today, all around how your customers say one thing and then act in a completely different way. So tell us a little bit about this, um, the inspiration for this story and this topic. (laughs) Yeah, that was actually called The Lies We Tell Ourselves. And it's because I used to think that data would tell you everything, right? Like you would say, uh, if people, if you ask people, who do they want to date? They would usually answer with, indeed, the people they want to date in terms of their age and gender. There's no reason why would people lie. But what we've observed is that people who are also are very self-conscious about how do they come across. So yeah. for instance, men would say, well, I want, if they were 25, I will date someone between 20 and 30 years old. But in reality, what we saw is that specifically men would always be messaging, you know, women that were at least uh, 18 and their range of people that they would want to message was much more wider, both in terms of younger and older than what they usually said. And the same was true for, for women, a little bit more limited. But it was interesting that whilst their profile said something, when you actually saw the actions and who did they proactively message, it was very different from what they had originally written. And a lot of the insights were that, that people sometimes either they don't realize what they want, or again, they're very self-conscious about how they're going to be perceived. And But then the actions would allow us, in our case, more flexibility in terms of who could they, we pair them up. Because if we saw that, you know, men had a broader range, it made it, it allowed us to have a bigger pool of people we could match them up with. I'm feeling slightly picked on there. So I'll stand up for my judge. <laughs> what did you learn about the women? What did what did they what was the difference between what they said and the way they acted? Yeah, so women usually um, they will want to date older men. 
And from what they state, they're going to vary, say, like three or four years older um, than what they have stated. Men, on the other hand, no matter how old they are, basically the majority would still be messaging 18-year-old women. (laughs) So um, how did you end up asking this question? We would still ask the same question. I think that it was just much more about the ranges towards which we could allow you to connect with someone. So if you think about uh, when you have, it's really a supply and demand problem, right? When you're constraining the ages, you're basically constraining the demands that you will have because you're saying, I can, I only want, you know, say this five years range, but if in reality you could be open to 10 years, then we already have much more women in this case for men that we could show them and men would still be interesting in answering. So I think it it was much more of a marketplace problem that originally it seemed more constrained than in reality it was. And once we understood that the behavior was leading to more openness, it allows for us to have a more diverse marketplace. For any of the people who are listening who are single and are looking for advice, it's rare that they get uh, the chance to talk to someone who's analyzed this so deeply. So do you have any advice about what the optimal strategy is? Should you be sending messages first? Should you be targeting people at uh, specific ranges and things like that? Yeah. So two that stand up in terms of advice, one, it's more related for women, and I'll tell you why. Uh, usually, no matter what gender we're talking about, and, and, and we're talking about a very uh, binary world of just mm-hmm. women and men, of course, uh, there's uh, more genders here for uh, to simplify things. I'm going to talk about women and men, but just know that obviously at, at uh, OkCupid would have 22 genders and 13 orientations. So I don't want this to come across as a very binary world. But um, in this example that I'm going to use for women, when in a heterosexual uh, world, where women are getting pinged by men, usually men are going to message women that have a higher popularity score than they have. And actually the same is true for when any when women message men, they're also going to message someone that we that is ranked higher. In, it just let me tell you a little bit about that. How we rank uh, popularity in OkCupid is from when you're shown to 10 people, as an example, how many of them are going to say that they like you. And that with other variables, say, how popular are you going to be? So going back to the part about messaging, usually people message someone that is more popular. So when women see their inbox and they're like, oh, I'm going to see who from the people that message me, I'm going to curate this and I'm going to go for the best one. They should still realize that they're curating from people that are going to be less popular than they are. So even though they're curating, the likelihood of ending up with someone with a lesser score is going to be true. On the other hand, when women reach out, A, because we know that they're probably reaching out to someone more popular, and because not many women proactively message, most women that message are going to get an answer. So now we're getting two variables that women are going to reach out to someone more attractive. That person is very likely going to answer, and they're going to be very likely going to date with this person. And now think about the differential from they curated their inbox probably are going to end up with someone less popular versus if they reach out, it's going to probably be someone more popular than they are and they're going to get an answer. So that's what we actually call the be proactive advantage, which means that if you're just getting your things from your inbox, 
it's going to be probably something less good than what you deserve. But if you are proactive about reaching out, and this is this might not just be useful for men, but things in, at work when you uh, raise your hand and say, I want that project, I want the job, then it's probably going to be something that is better for you. And the chances that you're getting are definitely going to be higher if you say it out loud or, or again, in dating or proactive about messaging than if you're not. We can talk about the second one uh, later on, which is more related about not going for plain vanilla. Usually people that stand out as very unique are going to be more interesting. So I'll quickly go into this example. If you are someone that it's going to be uh, attractive to the mo majority of people, people though are going to feel less strongly about you, that if you're someone that it's going to be polarizing, that say um, 40% of people are going to think you're super unattractive and 40% of people are going to think that you're super attractive. That's actually what it's much better when you can give more of what makes you unique because then people are going to more likely, those that really like you are going to very likely message you versus when you're playing vanilla. Okay, cool. So the tips are... Be interesting and uh, individual and also reach out if you're a woman. Yep. Awesome. <laughs> I'll remember that. Um, I'm married, so. Then um... <laughs> <laughs> forget that. This is all kind of like, it's so alien to me because I was um, dating my husband when I was 19. So I completely missed out on all of the online dating stuff, which um, I find totally fascinating as well. A lot of people say, and just like there, is that um, uh, I think though a lot of the learnings from dating actually apply to real life. That's why I talked about work and other things. Where sometimes I think that in dating, what we had was a really good understanding of almost human nature, but that actually the learnings can be applied to many other things other than dating. Yeah, I can understand that definitely. Put yourself forward, and then you get better opportunities from it. Yeah. So when you were asking these questions to the people, like, you know, what age do they want to date? Was that like a, a, a sort of selection box when they signed up and then you were observing their behavior or did you do any more qualitative analysis as well or, or interviews with your users? That was mainly uh, through tests, all of the data. So OkCupid okay, is a very data-driven company. Mm -hmm. And therefore, most of the analysis that would be done would be through just uh, launching something and seeing how would it react. And to specifically answer that part related to who are our users, it was putting that through the onboarding flow. Later on, we can also talk about how and I have learned about engaging much more the user research and so on, so that I can have a more nuanced understanding of how do I uh, think about the, the data that I'm seeing through, uh, again, launching different tests. But back in the day at OkCupid, we were mainly a very test-focused uh, company. We talk a lot about moving past the move fast and break things and be a little bit more deliberate these days and make sure you don't make the wrong choice. Still try to have a bias towards action, but be really considered about what you do. And I can see in a, a, spot, a space like dating, the danger of rolling things out too quickly just to get some data could be pretty consequential. So how did you balance trying to get things out quickly and getting the information with making sure you were taking the right precautions? So for instance, we did it when we launched the 22 genders and 13 orientations. 
uh, we were the first dating sites that launched the more than, than the binary or before we actually used to have for sexual orientation, gay, lesbian, or bisexual. And what we had to do was reached out to a lot of LGBTQ groups so that we could best understand, you know, how how to even think about the feature, what type of words to use, could people select one gender or several genders, one orientation, several orientations. And that was um, more of a, uh, a touchy area where we could really get things wrong. So what we did was a reach out to a lot of groups so that we could better understand what words to use. And we also shared a lot of the onboarding experience so that we could get immediate feedback. And on top, when we launched the experience, we said that it was a beta and we also gave an email address so that people could reach out to us and let us know how were we doing so that it didn't feel that we were, it was more like, here's why we are doing this because we care. And we know that when people are searching for their soulmate, they need to express themselves who they are versus a very square view of the world. But the other one was we knew that it was also a subject that was very important for people and where we could have just many ways in which we could get it grown without even knowing. So that's why we reached out first. And then once we launched it, we also said, let's, um, instead of this being a white or black, this is actually right now a beta where we need to get your feedback so that we can get it better. And I think that was really appreciated by our users. And did you have any other examples. So the the main example that you talk about in the presentation that you gave was around this age, um, you know, saying that you want to date within a specific age range, but then actively messaging people outside of that range. Did you have any other sort of really explicit examples of where people said one thing, but then did something else? Well, uh, the age one was very important. I think what I'm going to give you is another flavor of something else that we didn't expect. And I think that's what started now as a product executive leading me towards how do I best balance analytics versus qualitative data. And that was we wanted to improve our onboarding flows because usually with a free product, you have a lot of people that try things out, but they don't stay around. And as we were gearing towards an IPO, we needed to uh, show higher growth, which obviously meant bringing people in, but also keeping them. So what I realized, and we will, you know, we can talk about it, was thinking about the product as a business dynamics um, setup or environment. And I realized as I was doing this diagram of causes and effects, and I realized that the questions part was going to be critical for having a match. And the reason is that we would do our matching algorithm based on what questions did you care about? How did you answer them? How did you want your potential match to answer them? And it turns out that questions were very delayed in when people were putting their profiles. So many times during the first time user experience, they would not give us that data, which meant that they would have very low matching scores with other people. Whilst if we thought about bringing them up front, we could get that data and then the likelihood of them of having a higher match in the first time using their product would be higher. So one of the examples of the different tests that we did was bringing the questions and I'll spare you how we went through them, but we basically did a swipe left, swipe right type of questions where if it was left, it was a no and yes was a right. And we would say, for instance, do you like scary movies? Yes, no. 
And one of the different iterations that we had was that on top of just showing you the questions, we would also show you faces next to them. And the idea was to make it more like a game because I came from Zynga and I knew that making people excited was probably going to lead them to have a higher retention or that they would engage with that flow. But it turns out that that variant where we had all of the faces was not performing well. People were skipping that process or just... uh, yeah, they were basically just keeping the process and would have the lowest retention. Later on, when we talked to users, we learned that the reasons was that people were kind of playing with it and gaming the flow. They were basically trying to guess if they answer one way or the other, what type of people would we show them? So they almost thought that there was one way to answer things and that would lead to higher, uh, more attractive people versus what they actually cared about. So that was a really interesting part about how data can be misleading or they cannot give you the full answer. In this case, when I had my different variants, I would see that one had more engagement than the other. But in reality, it was based on how humans think and feel. And in this case, they were biasing the experiment because they they had a, a, an a priori or a, an, an understanding of how to try to get the right matches in terms of physical appearance versus on what they cared about. I love it. An educated user can be a dangerous user. <laughs> yes. So, and one of the other things you talked about in relation to this, uh, as you were trying to perfect this, you had a realization about profiles being like cereal boxes. What was what was the story? <laughs> yeah. So when I was talking with the product team, I said. Okay, Cupid, you know, we have so much depth. The problem is that when we would show people users, they would have to read almost like essays about themselves. And we were coming in a world where, you know, Tinder was growing and and it was all about photos. So we could not have a branding problem in the sense that we were a very different product and a very different brand, but we also needed to adapt to a faster consuming world. So what I told them was like, Think about when you go through an aisle and you're in the supermarket and you want to get some cereal. You usually first want to see if you like vanilla, you're going for chocolate or you want it crunchy. So it's almost more like that thing that you see on the top, like a photo with a couple of um, adjectives or things that allow you to know if that's what you want. And then if you're interested, you're going to grab that cereal box and you're going to turn it around and think about the calories or other things that you care about. So it's the same way in which we did with the profile, where we basically distill information that was important, such as age and location, but also we would give you a taste of whether you matched in terms of um, lifestyle and religion and politics and others. And only if you were interested, you could click on those and now actually read, did you have a high percentage of um, similarity or not? But we didn't want to make you have to dive in into someone before we would just like let you know whether it seemed like it was someone that was going to be interesting to you or not. So that if it was not, you could actually pass on and see more profiles. Uh, But if you were then interested, you could actually then with a click tap and get more information. So it was almost more giving you a pre-read of the person. And that's why the cereal box versus giving you the full detail. Uh, And the, the interesting thing is that that really turned out to be very beneficial Because then people would see more profiles, which meant that they could potentially have more matches versus when they were reading just one or two profiles in detail and might not have had someone that they liked. So it was finding the right metric and that was showing them enough profiles so that they could get to the best possible ones. 
yes, plus giving them the right information, which also took a lot of iterations to say what was interesting for people when they would say, if you only have, for instance, eight things that you can show, which ones are going to be the most defining in terms of whether people are going to click on, uh, on them or not? And after your time at OKCupid, do you now think that there's a, an algorithm that can find love or is it still serendipity as well? <laughs> That's such a good question. Um, I always use my products. So I actually found my partner on OKCupid and it has been great. So I think it's both um, that, yes, there's uh, algorithms that can help you, you know, have an idea of what you like. But obviously, it's also serendipity where in that example, he had messaged me three years before. I had never even answered the, the message. And then I ended up messaging him back and it turned out to be really good. But I could also have missed that message. And then we might have never you know, met each other. Amazing. Good. I'm glad that I'm glad that there is an algorithm that can find love. That's good. <laughs> yes. And we knew that um, we had a really high matching percentage, 99 percent. And wow. obviously, I, 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 I would receive emails uh, every day about people that have found their, the, you know, the love of their life because of the product. So I think it's both, right? Like in a world where people are so busy between uh, waking up and going to the office and then just having a limited set of people that they can meet every day, it does make sense to try to go to a place where you can diversify. And even better, if that matching can be related to things that you care about more than just looks. Because obviously looks matter, but it's also going to be whether you can have a conversation that is engaging and that you have an affinity towards how you think about life. So that's where I think algorithms come into play. So I'm going to deviate slightly from your topic, but it's on a very similar note. And I know that you've done a talk recently about this. Uh, so you did this talk about managing your life like a product roadmap. And funnily enough, when I before I got together with my husband, and I have to be careful because he edits the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> he knows what story <laughs> Before I got together with my husband, I literally had a prioritized list of requirements. Um, and I would hold each of my dates up to this list of requirements and go, hmm, do they match or no? And I would fail fast and move on quickly if they didn't match my list of requirements. And and Luke matched my list of requirements. So he's he's still around. It worked for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And I'm I'm glad that um other people use my point is I've been mentoring and coaching and leading so many teams. And a lot of the ways in which I like to engage with my teams is not just thinking about, you know, how do they improve their skills in A, B, or C for a specific product launch? It's much more, what do they want in life? How can I help them get there? And knowing that lives and careers are a journey. And therefore, what I started doing was starting to work with teams around their life goals. And how do they think about prioritizing them? In which decade do you, would they think that they would be fulfilled those goals? And what would they need to have set up so that they could actually fulfill them? So that made me started uh, thinking about life as a product roadmap, where you basically say, what is your true north? What is it that you want to attain? By when? Uh, what is going to be the priority? Because perhaps some of the goals are big, some of them are small. And in the same way, what is the friction? Just like we do with product roadmaps, where we can say some of the, goal, the, the launches require a lot of work. Some of them are going to be quick wins. 
And once we would identify them, then we would say, okay, now for this quarter or for this year, when you're thinking about your skills, what is it that we want to work on? What are would be the different uh, uh, projects that they would be uh, uh, put on so that that would actually match what they really cared about in life? So my point there is that I develop a bunch of different tools with, that I use with my teams that now I've made public, and they usually revolve around that prioritization from life goals to how do you think about your life? And I even created a model, an Excel model, where basically it's about how do you think about values and your job and other jobs that people might be thinking you about so that you can have a qualitative point of view towards assessing where you're at and what are other opportunities that you might have so that when people are thinking about their next job, it's not just about, oh, this company seems cool or this company is paying me a lot, but they can actually reflect about the whole life, like from work-life balance to you know creativity and learning, and then have a more holistic way to assess where, what do they want to do next. Keeping on the theme of advice that you give to people, you're in uh, a fairly unique role having been getting your hands really dirty uh, in terms of product development, but also holding these senior executive roles. What type of mistakes do you see people in product roles making when they're trying to work with people higher up in companies, when they're trying to convince them of things or trying to get the get a better understanding? What I see the most often, especially around uh, middle management, it's that very laser focused view around product that sometimes like how people will explain this matters because they'll talk about product innovation or um, the deadlines around a product launch. And if that is correct, but they're missing to to think about a C, like how would a CEO think about something? We don't launch uh, product features or products themselves just for the sake of it. We think about them as how are they going to change our business, right? Are they going to bring more customers? Are going to be going to be able to monetize more? So how does that, that affect the PNL? So I think that sometimes being overly technical can actually come to the detriment that people you're going to have arguments that are mostly around technology or, or innovation and are missing the part that ultimately companies and products are businesses. And we need to think about expressing that in the same way or even thinking, I often think about products as things that people consume. As an example, sometimes you need to launch a product feature A, B, or C so that then product marketing can actually say, we are revolutionizing the way in which we do something. But it's much more about the package of different features that are going to be able to be communicated to our our consumers in a certain way. And that's why I think that opening your view, A, to think about product as a business, but B, that ultimately is something that needs to captivate an audience. And then how do you think about the aggregation of features, much more as a packaged good that you now put in front of consumers that it's going to be either appealing or not, I think. And therefore, that tight relationship with marketing and other disciplines is what is super interesting to me right now. And where I mainly coach a lot of the people that are in, you know, middle management to director role so that they can expand their view of what they can become and what their careers could become as well. Jimena, you've worked in some incredible product companies um, throughout your career and you're now working at Intuit, which I know has had a lot of amazing product people come out of the business and, and work there. What advice would you give to people working in product who are looking to develop themselves and uh, sort of looking for that next step in their product journey? 
I think that product is a great uh, function to start in in a career because obviously as new companies develop, ultimately understanding that a company is the product and you're driving that, it's a key skill. The second thing that I've learned in my career is that once you have certain skills, they can be reproducible in different industries. In my case, I've worked, you know, we talked about dating and accounting and so on. And people often ask me, what is the arc that actually ties all of these experiences? And I think it's a, of course, having different skills like analytics and strategy and, and, and you know, making things happen in, in tandem with other teams. Uh, but it's also the ability to learn. And that's something that I really kept on hearing from executive search firms when they say, when we want to recruit someone, the main skill that we see is, is that person going to be able to grow? Because things are changing so fast that it's almost impossible to be an expert at something. But what you need to be an expert at, it's actually being able to quickly adapt, quickly learn, quickly react to different circumstances. And the other part, as I was um, thinking about that, is that product is a career that has a very long duration that obviously can lead to chief product officer or other roles, but it's also one that can quickly pivot to COO, CEO, or GM roles like my, myself. And so I think that uh, when people are thinking about entering product, A, they should think about what are the different skills that they can have. In my case, I didn't even have a CS degree, but I was able to bring again product and analytics and others. B, that they need to continue thinking about how can they continue learning, because that's ultimately going to be a very key advantage to having a career that grows. And, this, and, the, and the last part is that product could be the end of a career with, again, a very high role in product, or it could also be the pivot for them to be CEOs or for them to start their own companies. Awesome. Jimena, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. It was really fun. So now we know the secret to getting a hot date. What have we got next week? Yeah, uh, next week we learn all about how product works in the gaming market in casual gaming with Todd Green, the London studio manager for King Games. They're the ones who make Candy Crush and all your favorites. I'm an absolute massive fan of Candy Crush, so I'm really looking forward to this one. But in the meantime, have a great week and we'll see you next time. Like and subscribe. The product experience is part of the Mind the Product Network. Our hosts are me, that's Lily Smith, and Randy Silva. Emily Tate is our producer and Luke Smith is our editor. Emily is ours alone, but we're happy to share Luke if you need someone to edit your own podcast. Hey, you can't share him too much. He's my husband. <laughs> <laughs> our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg and plays bass in the band for letting us use the music. And sign up for your local Product Tank, a regular meetup in over 185 cities worldwide. There's probably one someone near you. And if there's not, you can start one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com slash product tank. Here's Global Coordinator Mark Abraham to tell you more about it. Product Tank is a global community of meetups in over 155 cities across the world, driven by and for product managers. Whether you have a group discussion or you're listening to speakers, the whole idea is to create a safe environment for product people to come together and to share their learnings and tips.